trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. At George Mason University, we are on a relentless quest to transform the world. And that means we don't necessarily play it safe. Karina Karostalina is the epitome of that. The professor of conflict analysis and resolution at George Mason's Jimmy and Rosslyn Carter School for Peace and Conflict Resolution is a tireless advocate for peace and reconciliation on a global scale. A social psychologist whose work focuses on the dynamics of identity and power in protracted social conflicts, Dr. Karostalina was recently in Poland interviewing Ukrainians displaced by war with Russia, and she was doing this for a study funded by the National Science Foundation called The Cost of Peace, War Experience, Territorial Loss, and Peace Agreement Consensus in Ukraine. She was in Rwanda for the World Conference on Reconciliation, which is put on by the International Association of Reconciliation Studies, of which she is vice president. And in Kenya, Dr. Karostalina is part of a three-year project to revamp the way the U.S. State Department mitigates conflicts between groups and countries. In addition, she has had 11 residential fellowships, including the Fulbright, the Rockefeller, and with the Woodrow Wilson Center. And her research has been supported by 46 grants. That's an impressive resume. Karina Karostalina, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's such an honor, but also a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, outstanding. Well, look, we're going to jump right into this. This is obviously a really, really important topic in light of current events. So let's set the basic stage here. You are Ukrainian from Crimea. Is that correct? Yes, I was born in Crimea. I went to university and got my degrees in Kiev. And it's very, very emotional, of course, for me. But it's also give me opportunity to deeply dig into the dynamics of conflict. I found that when your research hits close to home, and in your case, physically so, it provides an extra motivation to deal with the difficult times when a proposal might be rejected or you didn't get a fellowship that you want or you got a graduate student or an undergraduate who's struggling to understand and learn a concept and it's frustrating trying to get them to understand what's happening. You can look back and say, hey, but I'm in this business for this reason. And so I want to commend you on your life's work is actually solving a global problem. Thank you. And uh, you're completely right. First of all, when you submit proposals, you do not receive all of them. So I always tell my students and academic life is full of rejections. You have to be ready for it, but you have to understand that every rejection is an opportunity to improve your proposal, opportunity to develop a better article. And that's why we have this great ability to really receive a lot of projects and develop them in a way which supported by the major foundations. Now, you haven't been to Ukraine since the conflict started. Is that accurate? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how do you conduct your research given that you're not really accessing the country? 
my way of doing research in multiple countries, including Ukraine, is always to support as much as possible local scientists, local researchers, local students. So when we get the grant from National Science Foundation, all data, and we conducted more than 2,300 surveys and 90 in-depth interviews with refugees and people affected by war, all of them were conducted and collected by local research institutions and scholars mm -hmm. and students. But at the same time, for me, it's very important in interpretation to stay as close to results to stay as close as data and the meanings which people produce. So I went to Poland, I went to Czech Republic several times to explore and speak with refugees, to understand through deep conversation what meanings they attach to particular phrase, to particular ideas, which really helped me in my interpretation of results. Well, you talk about the local connection, and that's an interesting concept because the reality is what you see in many conflicts is a tendency towards kind of a homogeneous identity. And the Ukrainian conflict, this war, is very interesting in that you mentioned earlier you're from Crimea, right? Well, Crimea was annexed by Russia even before this conflict started. And there are significant populations of Russians in Crimea as well as other groups. So when you start to talk about local, how is that playing out? Because the individuals in Crimea, would they be in support of? Would they be against what's happening in the rest of the Ukraine? How do those pieces meld when the population is mixed? Yeah, this is a very, very good question, because what we notice in multiple conflicts, especially when it's involved war intervention, then it's involved mass violence, that societies tend to become more homogeneous, because they do need to come together to address threats, to address war dynamics, but in this process of homogenization, voices of different minorities are silenced. For example, in Ukraine now, of course, there is a strong patriotic feeling. In my research, but also in the research of other scholars, we see a huge increase in the importance of Ukrainian national identity. But unfortunately, at the same time, it's hijacked by people who represent national identity as just ethnic only Ukrainian, not giving voices to other people being contributors and loyal contributors to the nation, because the difference between ethnic and national is very important. That's why it's created a lot of problematic dynamics within the country, not just Ukraine, but we see it in Georgia, we see it all over the world. Right. My understanding in Georgia, though, is a little different. There is a real underpinning of backlash against the Russians in Georgia, in Crimea, which is part of Ukraine. At least on the surface, it doesn't seem that there's as much resistance. I don't want to use the word acceptance. It might be too strong of a word, but there is clearly some homogeneous identity that has been adapted to over the years that led up to this conflict. Is that accurate? Crimea is a very interesting case. So there are a lot of people who share Russian cultural identity, but it doesn't mean that they are loyal to Russian state. 
it's a very different type of identity, very different types of connection. And then Crimea was taken by Russian Federation in moment of several hours. People who can leave, again, we have to understand that leaving the country, it means that you have to be ready to find job in another place. You have to be healthy, right? If you are sick, you could not really leave. If you're old, you could not leave. So only people who could leave, they left as much as they can. Those who remained, not all of them loyal and want to be in Crimea. Many of them just could not move, but also resistance in Russian Federation, it's very hard. I read this interviews for people who were under Russian occupation now in free territories. And the level of terror, level of control, killing people, torturing people. I hosted a group of Ukrainian women who were tortured by Russian soldiers just because they were somehow protesting or just were wives of soldiers. The level of terror, it's unbelievable. So for people to resist, you have to have a lot of real courage and not every person can. So that's why the whole issue of reintegration of territories, which will come up pretty soon, as soon as Ukraine will free more and more territories, will be one of the key issues for Ukrainians. This whole idea of integrating territory is one that's going to be a difficult one, right? How dangerous is it for a country not to see itself as a multicultural entity and then listen to the voices of some minority groups in order to make itself whole. It's very dangerous because we just completed a very interesting study, which was lead, actually it's continued, we bring it on the next level. But the study was analysis of 15 peace processes across the globe. And I conducted this analysis based on identity dynamics, which is completely new type of approach. And what I found, in addition to many other factors, that if nation creates multicultural or civic based on connection to the state identity that peace processes sustained. If not, if country promote any concept of national identity, peace processes fail. So they fail if they mm-hmm. have some national identity? They fail if there is an ethnic concept of national identity. If only one group have control over other groups, if other minorities perceived as less capable or less able or the access to power and resources defined by ethnicity, then peace processes fail because it's not inclusive society. That is phenomenal. That is such a nascent concept. I don't know if people really catch what you just said there, because that is not just true for countries. I think that's true for societies in general. I mean, I say not for countries. I mean, not for countries who are undergoing conflict, right? I think in general, inclusive societies work best. And societies that are ruled or dominated by one group, especially if that group is not an overwhelming significant majority, leads to conflict and problems. I think you're really, really on to something with this line of work. Yeah, you're completely right. And I'm glad that you brought Mason because we'll we speak Mason nation, right? That's right? And the idea of the nation, as you know, we were developed during Middle Ages as was really connection to one students of the university which self self-govern around 
around themselves. And this really brings us to the idea that membership in a nation, it's equal, independent of what your ethnicity, race, religion, gender, everyone equal and everyone have equal responsibilities, but also equal rights. And this also can be applied to a nation and development of the nation. So liberal civic concept of the nation is much more important for countries in the war, recovering from the war, for example, for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So if you counterpose Ukraine as civic liberal nation to totalitarian Russia, is much better way to get out of the whole dilemmas of justice and peace and homogeneity and minorities than if you present ethnic Ukrainian nation in comparison with Russian ethnic nation. That makes a lot of sense. So let's deal with the proverbial, you would say elephant in the room, but let's make it different. Let's deal with the proverbial bear in the room. If you go through this reconciliation process, if you go through this integration of territory process, because at some point in time, this conflict has to end one way or the other, right? How does one trust the Russians after what just happened with Prigozhin? How do you know that influential leaders in Ukraine, influential leaders of this conflict, influential individuals behind the war and the resistance won't be picked off one by one by Russians over time? This is a very, very good question because, of course, you could not trust Putin regime. But there is a big difference between Putin regime and Russian people, and even people in Ukraine realize it. Then we ask in our survey what emotions people experienced toward Russian leadership and Russian people. We saw pretty significant difference around hate and anger and other negative emotions, which usually were around 9.8, 9.10 on a 1 to 10 scale for leadership, mm-hmm. but we were around probably 7 or 8 on for people. So it's still very high, but we see the difference. And reconciliation process is a very long process. And if we look at, for example, classic reconciliation between Germany and France, it took years after the violence stop for leaders to start reconciling. And still, then they propose reconciliation with a lot of resistance from people. Mm-hmm. For me, it's more important is really reconciliation for now, which is more pressing issue, reconciliation between territories which will be freed and Ukraine itself because there are a lot of voices in western Ukraine which were not mostly affected only by some rocket attack very negative perception of the people who were under occupied territories accusing them all of that happened and again it's not dynamic unique to Ukraine you see it in Colombia you see it in many other countries who undergone situations and territories belong to opposition or to different countries mm-hmm. and this accusation really brings this very strong tension between justice and peace. Are you bringing everyone to justice? How you bring them to justice? You cannot put everyone in prison. You need to find mechanism, local mechanisms of accountability on restorative justice, but in the same time, mechanism which help to win hearts and minds of people. Because if mm-hmm. you want them to be loyal citizens, you really need to create for them inclusive overarching identity they will be happy to live in. There's an identity part to that that I get, but there's a second part to this reconciliation piece that I want you to address. Mm -hmm. You published a paper examining the meaning of justice 
in the aftermath of war in Sudan. And in that paper you wrote, your study demonstrates that the respondents also saw the advancement of justice as returning to the peaceful time in the aftermath of war. How do you balance that? This is a very, very deep and great question because together with my colleague Daniel Rosberg, we conducted analysis of over 100 oral stories, oral histories of people affected by violence in Sudan. And one unexpected result, but very exciting result of it, that how people perceive the justice really depends not only on addressing violence, but also how they imagine their peaceful time. Usually in court of justice, international criminal court, other tribunals, investigations usually concentrates on what is done, right? What type of violence were committed, what type of mass violence affected the entire region, or what were done to particular individual. But nobody really re- asks how how do you see the peaceful time? And what we found that depending on the region, and we analyzed three regions in Sudan, they had very different perceptions what peace is. For one group, it was really community coherence, very close kinship between people. For other group, it was prosperity and economic development. And for another group, it was absence of violence and ability of them to move freely. So these three different views what peace is completely defined how they see the justice. I get that part of it. Mm -hmm. But if somebody killed your mother, if somebody killed your brother or your sister, and you are going through a reconciliation process, and these individuals had given up and were shot in the back of the head, there is a crime and a justice aspect to that. And that has to be reconciled too, right? Now going to very deep territory, and I love it, and I love it, exactly. So it's actually very interesting, because usually... Because this is some of the stuff we're hearing about what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, exactly, you're completely right. And usually research on how exposure to violence impacts support for peace and reconciliation, we're analyzing impact of violence in the general term. People were under occupation, people were affected by paramilitary and so on. In research I'm doing right now in Ukraine, we actually measure it separately. If you are affected and your property is affected, you are displaced, or you have somebody killed who you love. And what we found, that those who lost property or were displaced, they are more supportive of peace and reconciliation than those who were not. But those who lost loved one or close friends, they're actually more supportive for continuous fighting. They strongly against any peace negotiation because for them to deal with this trauma, it's very important to create the meaning of why it's happened. And the meaning of it is that we need to free all territories and reconciliation will never come. So this is very important dynamic which were not actually discovered before in science of analyzing war, but will also impact how we deal with reconciliation. Because for these people, you have to bring new meaning, and this meaning can be bringing to justice everyone who is responsible. 
But this meaning also will be building a new life and giving opportunity for their children to enjoy a new peaceful life. So it's all usually work with ability of people to address the main important values when they have. And again, it's a very long process which require very targeted, specific approach. You could not apply reconciliation to everyone in the same way. I agree with that because there are different experiences with reconciliation, as you clearly have highlighted. And the justice part of that, I think, is still the most difficult part, right? Because when they feel that justice has not been served, they carry a level of revenge with them throughout life. And it tends to cause the conflicts to reignite because that feeling of justice that has not been served. And that's the challenge. But it's very interesting that you bring in that because I just came from Rwanda and I was able to talk to a lot of people there, including Minister of National Unity, mm-hmm. but also with local people and local scholars, with people who work in museums, there are multiple museums of genocide in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And one of the very important wisdom which came from these people is that, yes, you can live with sadness and revenge, but then all your life is there. You live in the past. You will never look in the future. I understand that. And this is what Rwanda is doing right now. It's really trying to develop vision of the future and pride of a country which were able to overcome. And this pride as a social identity scholar, I know how much self-esteem important for people to overcome issue related to violence. There are still traumas, of course. It's a long process, but giving people alternative looking into common future, this approach that stop looking in the past, and you free yourself, right? You free yourself with that, but you have to be sure that justice is achieved, that international institutions, national institutions working hard to achieve justice and bring those who are responsible Mm -hmm. to justice. I understand. So as a Ukrainian, how personal is your research in your country? Of course, it's very personal. And actually, science helps <laughs> to deal with it mm-hmm. because I look at this issue as a scientist. I was very happy that National Science Foundation acted very quickly and within several months of beginning of war, were able to get a grant and start research because then you're analyzing it as a scientific process. It's helped to deal with emotions, but at the same time as I teach my students and because because, you know, at Carter School, students come from all over the world. That's right. They all affected by deep conflicts, not only in the world, but here in the United States, too. No, they, I agree with yes, that. Yes, absolutely. And for many people, what they study, it's very personal. And it's actually good because they understand dynamics, but it's very important always to reflect how your meaning, how your positions impacted. And there are ways to do it. For example, then I write results I presented to groups which I know very opposite in views and I hear from both of them and see if my research actually pretty objective or if there are my biases which I did not recognize. Mm-hmm. It's actually might be interested because speaking about domestic issue, I published just before Trump was elected, unfortunately, but I hope it will be earlier but took longer. I published the book Trump Effect. Where <laughs> really? Yes, where I analyze how he empowers 
people through different types of aggressions, through different types of insults, through different types of increasing their self-esteem through favorable comparison. So I show multiple mechanisms why people love Trump. And I was speaking about this book. Of course, I had my bias, but I tried to present this book as objective as possible, to be scientific as possible, because people who agree with me, they already agree with me, right? <laughs> people who disagree with me, if they see my bias, they will never read it. So this is very important to reach across this, as I always tell students. Yes, our field is very normative. Mm. We want peace. But in the same time, we need to reach to people who disagree with us. Right. Have you lost contact with any of those you've been working with in Ukraine? Do you know anyone who's lost their lives in the conflict? Unfortunately, yes. Just before war started, I was working with several projects in Ukraine. One was in Kherson, Mariupol, and Kharkiv. Everyone now knows these three cities. And I know that several male faculties which Mm -hmm. I was working with were killed. personally, and I know that a lot of students which we were teaching also were affected. So as a scientist, as someone who does research, right, do you find in any way that the emotions of that, these are people who you do, who you engage with, who in some cases may have even have been friends, does it affect how you approach the science? It definitely does, right? We, right? we are emotional people, but there are special ways how to deal with it, and there are developed social science approaches because we know then we interpret results, we introduce our meaning in it. We are not That's objective right. people. So it's very important to always reflect on your biases. And I also teach students to, in every paper they write, have a reflection part small outer analysis or anthropological review of yourself, right? Some reflection which show how you're belonging to a particular group, how you're belonging to group, especially which is affected, especially victimized, how it's affect, how you analyze things. And there is a very interesting theory which I love. It's actual development theory, but I bring it all this to conflict analysis and resolution, Keegan theory, which describes level of morality and on a fifth level of morality is there you actually able to recognize yourself as a member of different groups and how belonging to groups impact your behavior mm-hmm. and this is the highest level of moral perception which i hope we develop among our students in the school oh that's great because if we can help people incorporate or understand how their biases affect their work, and that's going to make them better researchers and better scientists on the back end. If you're a journalist, it's going to make you a better journalist. If you're a social scientist, it's going to make you a better social scientist, right? If you're a psychologist and you're looking at it, it's going to make you a better one. So that's really good stuff to help people work through that as they are learning these issues, right? We have a number of Ukrainian students here at Mason, and some of them may make their way through your classes. And in the context of this conflict, they're going to have to understand. I'm not saying you leave your emotions or you check them at the door. No, 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 you have them. But understand how to utilize them positively in the outcomes 
that you hope to achieve in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I strongly believe that understanding how your belonging to group impact you, it's mm-hmm. very important and it reflects this one of the key actually dilemmas of our humanity is this dilemma between security and freedom. If you are free and you want to be free, you have all your perceptions, ideas, values, your own, right? You're free from judgment of other groups and so on. But you are not protected because no group will come and protect you. To get protection of the group, you have to join group and become loyal. And loyalty means that you change your own perceptions, ideas, values to group. Now you feel like group, you perceive like group, your values become group values. And in this dynamic, you have to find balance between security you need and freedom you want. And it's okay if you are living in society which have low level of violence. But if you live in society which has high level of violence, can be structural, it can be cultural, it can be open violence. In this situation, people tend to have protection. So they give up their own freedom, their own thoughts, their own ideas. To become protected, they start thinking like group, and the more they think like group, the more they see threat from other groups. And the more they see threat from other groups, the more they think like groups. So it's become vicious spiral, right. which impact dynamics of societies. Oh, wow. The knowledge you are giving now goes far beyond Ukraine. Thank you. So speaking of that, let's take it into the classroom. You have all this information about Ukraine, the war, how people feel about peace, and you're in the Carter School. How do you incorporate that into your classroom and how do you incorporate that into teaching? This is great that my ability to travel, to get grants, and work in multiple countries. I done work in more than 25 countries, I stopped counting. And I bring it to my classroom. Every time I go to any place, I'm able to bring them first-hand information about dynamics of conflict in this particular place. I work with, like for example, we just finished a project in Lebanon, which I was working with young people across sectarian divide, and these insights of young people were so useful for me to bring to the classroom. But also it's sometimes helped to change the way I teach the class. We had project with Serbia, with University of Nish, where students in my class and students in Serbia, we actually conducted parallel research on the same topics. And then we had a huge conference last May where students from two countries presented their research related to minorities, to dynamics of inclusion. It's a great opportunity that what we're doing as researchers, as practitioners, then we're bringing it to our classroom and inspire our students. One of the things that our students say, and we like to say at Mason, is that we are a diverse campus, broadly diverse, fiercely inclusive. We talk about us being the most diverse campus in our state. Because of that, do you find that our students are more open to understanding and overcoming the conflicts that emanate from many of the issues in which you deal with, and that being culture and identity? This is so interesting question because just yesterday I started teaching again undergrad class on social identity, culture, and conflict. And this is what we had. I asked students, we went around and I asked, what is your exposure to conflict? How you understand conflict? 
and a lot of them were bringing exactly their racial or ethnic or cultural heritage. It's how it's impacted their life, their feeling of inclusion or exclusion. This was very interesting Then they interpret conflict, many of them, as dealing with diversity and being able to thrive mm-hmm. in environments where they appreciate it. Right. No, I hear you. If you were to boil down your goals in terms of your classes and what you want to teach, if you're able to boil that down into a set of outcomes, what do you hope students take away from your classes? I think my major goal is empowerment. Knowledge is just a tool to give students opportunity to make a change. So my major goal is to give opportunity for students to realize that they can make a change, how they can make a change, and give their belief that they can do it. Hmm. That's good. I really, really like that. Let's switch gears here one more time. You're part of a project that will basically, for lack of a better way of putting this, recreate the way in which the State Department deals with groups and countries that are in conflict. What is the goal? This is a very exciting project, which we're very proud of. I'm PI, and I'm working with Susan Allen, who is my colleague at school. So this project concentrates on contact theory. And contact theory, in two words, it's something that describes how we bring different groups together to create social cohesion, to address polarization, to create local governments, to enforce civic society. So a lot of resulting from just bringing groups together. And what we found and State Department found that it does not really work as it should be. It's not just like you bring people together, they talk, and then now they change, right? It doesn't work this way. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of concern about it. So we have three year project which first we analyze existing literature, bringing a lot of new fields into it, complexify, developing new answers and new tools. Mm-hmm. And we're now analyzing projects doing interviews and next step extremely exciting when we will go to different countries and do experimental design see what works better let's put group together in this way or in this way for example one of the major misrepresentations that you bring groups together decrease the identity develop friendship and then they will go and change their communities nope doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. No, because they now see each other as person to person, but it doesn't impact their perception of other group. It's actually recreate, we call this counter stereotypes, but actually enforce stereotypes. You you said something there, Uh because I've seen this in my own life, right? Uh So you call it counter stereotypes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so let me make sure I understand what you're saying here. You're saying, okay, You've got two groups of individuals who, for whatever reason, they don't get along, they don't like each other, different ideologies. You find a way to bring these groups together so that they can have conversations, they can talk, Mm -hmm. they can engage. But when they go back, they basically make an exception Mm -hmm. for the people who they built the friendships with, right? Absolutely. Right? They do not work across divide. And then, but when they go back, they keep the same beliefs of the group that they had when they came together. Yes. And see, I don't, that, that's mm-hmm. counterintuitive to me. Yeah, this is because they see that all other representatives are still very bad. There are some good of them, but it's actually <laughs> because they're close to us. And we actually showing how you can bring second level, how you now recategorize, how you bring their identities back 
in this interaction without destroying their friendship. So how would you create dual identity over Russian identity? So the three-step process instead of simplistic one-step process. So then they get back. They actually see others and themselves as a members of the group, but they also see a lot of commonalities between mm -hmm. groups, and it's changed completely their ways how they work. It's one of the tools. What forces them to see the commonalities? Because there are specific tools, for example, deliberations, how you bring deliberations into discussions. There is a tool, so-called uh, gateway groups. For example, dual ratio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a person who belonged to two different religions somehow was in one, one religion or see more ability to work across religion. A lot of priests have this ability to understand more reflective way. Or you bring people who work across national level, for example. Now you bring those people into the group. Yes, and they work as a catalyst. They ah, really I see. help. I see. It's, there again, we identify at least nine in different tools which can help to recategorize people together, which were not used before. So no, that's why we're good. very excited that this is we, really good. Exactly. It will be a new age in contact theory. As we begin the wrap up here, you just talked about this whole group dynamics and how to make that work. One of the things that I think has happened, it was always been a part of the American engagement, but more so over the last five to ten years, is the growing use and utilizations of insults, whether those insults be on social media in the form of memes and the other thing, or whether they just be outright verbal insults, right? We see how that is playing out right here. Donald Trump uses them constantly, right, to denigrate his opponents. And some see him as a strong leader because of his use of insults. It was a very, very different way of engaging people that he had that was different from pretty much every other president preceding him. How do you see insults playing a part in conflict? How do you manage it when it comes time to try to bring people together to resolve and have conflict resolution? You are so right. I also noticed this increased dynamics several years ago, and I just decided, okay, what we have in social science about insults? And I found that it's actually good news and bad news for me. Bad news, there were no coherent theory to analyze insults, but it's also good news. There are no coherent theories, so I can develop <laughs> so one. So you can develop them, yes, yes exactly. So, and then I published this book with the Oxford University Press because I analyze insult as a mutual act on a border between two individuals or two groups. I analyze it on different levels, individual, intergroup, international level. And what the key on this theory is that insult is actually indicative of the needs what particular person insulter has. People insult not because they just misbehave or incivility or something. Insult is a representation what is missing in people's needs. Mm -hmm. For example, those who use identity insult, they have issues with self-esteem. Those who use legitimacy insult, they have issue with recognizing their own power or being recognized by others. Right. So those who use relative insult, those people have issue with accepting them as equal people. So every time then what this book helped and to realize if you know what insult people are using, 
you actually can use it against them or together with them. If you're willing to work with them and recognizing what their needs are, so you're able to bring more negotiation, more abilities to address the conflict. Mm-hmm. So instead of being just offended by insult, use it as a tool of information. Right. Last question. You've seen war. You've studied the human condition and how we're prone to conflict and how we're prone to insults. How optimistic are you about the long-term prospects for human existence? Oh, I'm very optimistic. I'm super optimistic. First of all, yes, what we see now, it's a lot of violence, wars. But if you look into dynamics of mankind through centuries, we're in much better place than we were before. You know, nobody makes that point, but it is absolutely true. We have progressively gotten better, not worse. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at it. Women have now rights to vote. Women have <laughs> opportunity right, right to right. be equal. We look into more progressively accepting gay marriage, for example, right, in multiple countries. The torture is now considered illegal. Right? There are people responding to the war. Is it perfect? Not yet, but we go in there. There are more awareness about, more increased, and more than I work with young generation. You know, it's unbelievable. You see results of the projects across the globe. Then you see what people develop as a result of us bringing them knowledge and skills. This is what keeps us going, people who work in a very, very traumatized situation when it's very hard. As scholars who work in conflicts, we have to recognize we're also traumatized by exposure. But in the same time, ability to see the change is what keeps us going and I have a strong optimism in mankind, and I believe we're going into a better place slowly. I appreciate that. Well, we'll end it on that positive note, and this has been quite a bit in education. You have touched on far more than Ukraine. Thank you to our guest, Karina Karostalina, Professor of Conflict Analysis and Resolution in Mason's Jimmy and Rosalind Carter School of Peace and Conflict Resolution. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.